0: Welcome to this episode of Music Matters with Daryl Craig Harris and Music Tribes Unite News. Talking about all things music with celebrities, artists, music business insiders, and more. Alan Roy Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I am doing just fine and a nice crisp uh, March day here in Columbus, Ohio, where I am at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So you're visiting family out there, but you're actually, you're, you're I, I had a great, I'm here. My, my had a, I'm a grandfather. Now my grandson, Theo was awesome. born on New Year's day, the first wow. day of baby of the new year. And I'm meeting him. I met him last night for the first moment. So yeah, I'm here visiting my son, his wife and meeting my grandson. Uh, that's <laughs> exciting. And, and I know, you
0: know, like you, you like me, we're both super busy, crazy,
1: People. <laughs> you were actually so in Norway. Never, more, last than week. Now. never, yeah, never, never more than now. Never more than now. To be in Norway last week, be back in right. LA, be in Columbus today, go home, moving to Sweden on the 14th of March, going back, Spain, Belgium, bomb. <laughs> that yeah, <dependent>. yeah. That's
0: <laughs> exciting. So uh, we were talking because you're actually. I mean, you have such a huge career and have had a very long career, even going back to, uh, well. I Abraham say, Lincoln.
1: Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> one of my first Not quite
0: that long. So uh, yeah, so you've done a lot, you I've known globally as a as a very well-known songwriter, and you've done work with a long list of artists, including Celine, Gloria Stefan, Patti LaBelle. It's a very, very long list. Also, have done tons of TV and movies,
1: soundtracks. Yeah, top One, Times America, Variety Kid, many or... You know. Other things. Staff writer at the TV show Fame back in the day with Debbie Allen and Janet uh, right. Jackson.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So how did how did you get started in songwriting? And I know that's a big question, but how did that happen for you? Everyone,
1: you know, first of all, I'm the first person to admit that I was lucky enough to come up in the golden age of songwriting. And, and I... Mm-hmm. I'm still very active now. And it's a new world. And we could talk all about streaming and the way things are then and whatever. The point is, I came up in the golden age. So uh, everybody needs to have a break in Lux. I believe that that it's all about being prepared and having the talent you need and being able to take advantage of the opportunities. But you have to also have the break or the, or the things that lead you to have the ability to use your talents and opportunities. So I had my my breaks as well. And my story really quickly, the funniest thing is I I trained, I was an actor, I was on Broadway in one of the early revivals of Hair. I was trained to be an actor and a musical theater person, but I always wrote songs on the side. I had a double interest in songwriting as a kid and also theater. So I was living in New York and I was leading the life of a uh, musical theater person auditioning for Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar and logo shows. <laughs> the in commercials. I had an agent. Nathan Lane from the producers, uh, yeah. He was one of my audition buddies. In awesome life. But right. anyway, I reached a point where I just reached a day where I said I'm done. I really don't wanna audition for one more Alpo food commercial. I'm really not cut out to be a performer. I'm much more comfortable being behind the scenes. And I decided to quit cold turkey. And from that decision, which was 1977, I think, I had a hit eight months later as a songwriter, which in the modern world, That's not so shocking because you can go on, you know, American Idol and be famous five weeks later or whatever. But back in the 70s, to literally be a musical theater actor, make a decision to switch to songwriting and have a hit like eight or nine months later, that was pretty rare. And I had a break. My mother had almost married a guy in the music business. His name was George Sheck. He managed Bobby Darin and Connie Francis, among other Mm -hmm. ancient folk. (laughs) i was young then he was i worked with a lot of those people i (laughs) heard so so anyway and she and he actually turned out to be like i loved your mother and he helped me it was one break that she knew one person in the music business his receptionist was laura branigan who i later went on to work with all that kind of funny stuff how that goes and um he knew the manager of a group called the spinners And I was working with a publishing, I'm gonna tell you the way I went from being an unknown songwriter, an actor to a songwriter in nine months, I was in 19 bands. This is the seventies in New York. We we were busking at Central Park on the weekends. I had, Gladys Knight's producer, Tony Camilo saw us in the park and said, I want to do demos with you. I met a guy who wrote the hit Walk, Walk Away Renee in the park. He said, I want to do some demos with you. So like in a nine month period, I went, I was in like 18 bands, 15 publishing development deals with Warner Chapel, all in like a very condensed amount of time. You know. Yeah, it's exciting, right? It, it, of was, course. it was an exciting time. And I would go to Studio 54, and I was signed to this production company called Love Zager Productions, which had uh, uh, Sissy Houston. So I worked with Whitney Houston when she would sing background vocals. I wish I could say I worked with her later when she made $5 billion, but <laughs> well. I knew when she was <laughs> nine, yeah, the whole family, that um, the whole family was amazing. Right? Yeah, so I work. We work with Sissy, and they had the Spinners, and 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 uh, Ronnie Dice. And so I was with this production company, and my first hit was with the Spinners because they were being produced by this this Love Zager was in the, the company. So I, literally, my early career is like a a whirlwind. The '70s, and I mean, I came up in New York in the late '70s. It was all live musicians. You talk about the difference in the life of a songwriter. You know, and certainly I've come full circle now where, you know, and by the way, I have, you know, to condense everything into such a short time, I'm speed talking. I apologize. Oh, it's okay. You know, because the thing is, like I said with you, you have such a
0: long history. It's sort of like, where do you even, where do you even Well, I was going (laughs) to say the
1: funniest thing is that the fact that I'm still completely active to the degree that I'm doing tracks all the time. And I'm a top liner now because the big thing has changed with songwriting. The life of a songwriter used to be wrote the song. And then you would hire musicians to play it and then you demo of it. And then someone would record it. That was the chain. And it started with the song and being a songwriter was kind of the important role. Now you're a little bit more of an afterthought. Most times now I'm involved where a producer has a track, and I'm supplying the top line, the melody or the lyrics, you know? Kind right. Of thing, yeah.
0: But just, I mean,
1: and that's, and sort of like I
0: say like that's where the money is, but that really is. If, the, nah, so, if, that's not, nah, if it's is not there, money. yeah. If it's not there, then, then you don't have anything. right? Like, you don't have but, the melody. Well, and the...
1: So back in the day, in the golden age, what it meant is as a songwriter, I was a staff writer for 15 years with EMI and Motown combined, which was no easy feat. I never got dropped. I always had my contract renewed. I never took big money deals, but I always was getting enough going that they kept me year after year after year. So I was You're a working, working guy. Working I was a working veteran journeyman songwriter guy. And there were a bunch of us. And they're all my friends. And you know, nowadays you'd say there's the half of 1% that makes the big money, the influencers, the huge stars. And there's 99% of people who don't make too much. Back in the day, there was a 5% middle class. There was the 1%. There was the 93% who were waiters one. And then it was the 5%. I was one of those where we made a living for 10, 15, 20 years with album cuts, singles over six figures, high six figures. You know, I mean, it, was, it, was, it was a world that doesn't exist now.
0: Who were um, who were some of the artists that really stick out that were some of your favorites that, that you had that to is my influences are people
1: I, I got to work with later well, on. Well,
0: Actually both, really who were who were your early influences for songwriting?
1: well, i I'm self-taught. I'm self-taught. I was going to say back in the day you had to work with musicians, so I'm a piano player. Mm-hmm. I'm self-taught. I did, I did learn, I went to Berkeley later on for some additional training in Boston Conservatory, but basically I taught myself because in high school, I wanted girl. I wanted, I wanted to impress the girls like the guitar players. It all starts (laughs) with that. (laughs) So I taught myself piano and that was because I was a fanatic with Elton John, Billy Joel. um, And I grew up around R and B. So I was big with earth, wind and fire and other things, but I learned, uh, piano for Elton John and, and Billy Joel, basically. Yeah, so, yeah. and it's so interesting, helping.
0: too. The, the self-taught aspect is interesting because sometimes when you come from that perspective, you don't have the chains of being a classically trained,
1: well, right? Well, that's true because I also went, I spent my summers at a place called Interlochen, which is a, a, that's a famous, right? All the genius kids, and I'm there with all the prodigy ballerinas and the prodigy violinists and Seven and Van Clyburn, and I was in the music theater program, but... You know, I've always been around those kinds of highly trained people. So I was just a self-taught guy, you know, and, uh, and another thing you need to know about me, which matters is I grew up in the South side of Chicago in the sixties. And when I was a child, my father was very involved in gospel music and the whole civil rights movement in Chicago. As a child, I, his best friend, our family friends was the chess family. As in Leonard Chess, Chess. So, when I was seven or eight years old, I went to sessions for Muddy Waters and and Eddie James. I was around then. That's amazing. Yeah. And and, And and like you said, I sponsored a a gospel radio show called Jubilee Showcase that had a lot of guests from the neighborhood, like Shaka Khan and the Asians. So, the point I'm making is I grew up as a little redhead, freckle faced white child, completely (laughs) immersed in. Gospel and soul music from the 60s on the south side of Chicago. Yeah. And I,
0: it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that too, because for me, I mean, I'm a bass player, but I grew up, my mom had a huge record collection, a bunch of hundreds of singles. And I grew up listening. That's what I grew up listening to, like the Motown stuff, all the Beach Boy, all that stuff.
1: You and so I, like, are, that got I that gets the, the, same, the same. I had all my 45s. I remember yeah. that, you know, all the way back to Dancing to Bossa Nova by Elsa Presley when I was four, you know. Anyway, so that background meant that when I arrived in New York in the late 70s and I became a songwriter, even though I was self-taught, when it came time, and, and Love Zager was an R&B production company. And I had just come off of being a actor and a musical theater person. And suddenly I'm thrown into this production company with Sissy Houston and The Spinner, and I'm a white kid and it just came pouring out of me. No one knew how this white kid could do R&B. Because it would had been my organic childhood, right? Yeah, and that
0: that, you you, you're kind of like at at that age too. Going to these sessions, you're you're a sponge, right? You're just
1: soaking it all up. Yeah, and when the chips came down, I just you know I was paying attention to what people were doing, and it just was like, yeah, I can do that. I know what that is, and so I I overnight became you know very successful. That company, they basically raided all the writers because we had a cover on Billboard about Love Zager, the production company. And they were all, I mean, I mean, Billboard, 1978, the cover story right. on our production company. Yeah, so it was big for a moment, perhaps, happy.
0: Going back to what I asked before too, what, what are some of your, I know you've got right. tons and tons of stories, but what are some of the favorite uh, moments with artists that you, and some of your favorite artists that you've worked with over the years?
1: I, some, some great war stories. Okay. Let's talk about one. Well, one, I, I somehow I always gravitate to this one for some reason. It's is a funny one. So in addition to the songwriting and, you know, I also have this whole other music bridges life, which we can get into because Russia, Soviet union But my first Music Bridges project was in 1988 to the Soviet Union, where I brought Michael Bolton, Cyndi Lauper, Diane Warren, Man and Wild, Lieberstoll, I mean, the cream of the crop. We all went to Russia, to the Soviet Union and wrote songs with Russians in Moscow. It was,
0: anyway, Cyndi Lauper... Uh, We should say there's a huge pop scene in Russia that
1: we don't really know about here. And I'm still friends with all those official Soviet bands. The bass player from Autograph lived with me for a year. I spoke to him this week. He lives in Budapest now. Anyway, the way I used to do my uh, collaborations were by random lottery. I borrowed the Quincy Jones thing about leave your ego at the door. So I would bring all these famous people together and I'd say, you're going to write songs. I'm going to put your names in a hat. And you're going to agree to work with what the gods choose. And then if you want to, you know, Diane Warren wrote on the site, she wrote, you know, shelter for Taylor Dane at night. But during the day, they were on my project and they were going to work with the Russians. Anyway, my publisher who came with me insisted that I put my name in the hats, too. I tried not to, because I didn't want the celebrities and the people thinking, oh, this guy's organized. Right, you try to stick yourself in there, <laughs> you, you know. You know, right. and I, But she made me do it. And so I put oh, awesome. my name in the hat too, and I'll never forget this. So the names are drawn, and it was Cyndi Lauper, me, Frankie Previtt, who wrote, I've had the time of my life from Frankie and the Knockouts, and a right. Russian guy. And from the back of the room, Cyndi Lauper yells out in front of everybody, you mean I got to write with the organizer? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I love Sydney, too. <laughs> I felt like two inches tall. But the point <laughs> is, is that she turned out to be my favorite artist. I loved her. She is that way. She came with her boyfriend at the time. Dave Wolf was her manager. He came to Russia. And we... She was so nice to me in the end. I, I wrote the song, wrote a great song. I contributed, I got to co produce it with her in New York. And we became really, and I really saw that when someone is just truly themselves, it always works out. She, she's one of many I've met like that.
0: I saw her open in Vegas for Cher. And honestly, like, I can't that believe was you one-
1: mentioned Cher. That was my next story.
0: Well, we're gonna get there, yeah. Um, and, and it's funny because Cindy and I actually I was there for the rehearsal, and she's no joke. I mean, first of she's all, she's no takes, joke. She takes what she does very seriously, and she was freaking amazing. That's one of the best shows I've ever seen. She is
1: way no joke. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And I've so, been lucky to work with a lot of incredible people, and I, you know, I mean, um, I mean, you know, I could tell you my I did not work with Michael Jackson, but being from Chicago and Gary. I did get to know the rest of them and right. Janet and Kath, Catherine and I've had my Jackson stories, but um, but Cher is another one who was just the most regular, down to earth person. I encountered her and then I got to write a couple of songs with her. I was a, ever heard of, Miles, of the infamous Miles Copeland's castle in the south of France. Yes, I have. <laughs> Miles Copeland owns a castle. I believe he still owns it, literally a castle in the South of France. And he would use to hold the songwriting retreats there for his clients. And it was always very star-studded. And all my friends went. And in the 90s, I got to go. And that year I was there, it was Cher and Patty Smythe and, and Alana Miles, Black Velvet. She was right crazy one and a lot of <laughs> top writers, all my friends and and and, and bruce robert anyway anyway um i got to be part of the share hang circle patty Smythe, bruce roberts friend brenda russell myself and we would just hang with her and she was the most down-to-earth girl who happened to become famous we got to go to her mansion she had a sunny and share bath in one of her bathrooms the size of you know grand central station we got a She had a sunny shrine and, and, and I wrote with her and she was just the coolest person. And we wrote a really strange song called obviously Caucasian. I swear to God, (laughs) me Sharon, and this gentleman named Vinks. but I just, she just struck me as here is someone that is the world look puts her on a huge pedestal and she's just this funny girl.
0: The thing about Cher that a lot of people don't know is, you know, she was singing background on all these huge hits. She,
1: same thing. She was in the studio when she was
0: what, 15, 16 years old. And
1: isn't isn't it funny how people who grow up in it sometimes can maintain more of their humanness at the end than people that, I mean, I've known plenty of one hit wonders too. I mean, I I was very intimately involved with an artist named Martika, that whole project she, Toy Soldiers, and my friend, Michael J Founder on the D- Disney's Kids Incorporated. And it's a whole, you know, a whole story of how he took her from nothing to number one. And Tommy, anyway, I've seen Crash and Burns. I've seen. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough.
0: I mean, you know what the thing is, like you said, when you become famous that young and you don't have a lot of, you don't have the history behind it, like, like you did with being in the studio, kind of going through all that, you don't have an anchor. <laughs>
1: You get, you get kind of lost. <laughs> That's really a truism of kind of how that tends to go, which is why I'm very happy to sit here to you and talk to you like what I am, a behind the scenes. I've always been a behind the scenes guy working with everything and adapting. And that allows me to keep adapting and keep changing. I'm still... Behind the scenes, I'm working with Swedish producers and artists in Norway. So let's let's talk about that
0: because um I you're, you're talking about change. You have big a big change coming up. You're moving.
1: I am so you're moving gonna... in four, thir- 14 days. I will be moving to Sweden. Wow. First time in my life at the age of 65 years old, I'm moving to another country. And I have a, a lovely lady. I'm madly in love at the age of 65, which is a nice thing to awesome. find out that you can still start all over again, <laughs> it Still, it and still keeps personally going. and professionally. It's, <laughs> it's, it's been, that's been beautiful for me because, you know, the last years of the pandemic for all of us and the world we live right. in, terrible things make you reevaluate the you music mean? industry. Completely. It's just so nice for me to see that you can turn the page yet again. And I'm doing it. And I'm very
0: blessed. That's awesome. And and also, too, um, we have mutual friends uh, from Finland that are heavily involved in Eurovision uh, and also... So you were just in Norway for their um, each country. We should say right. Each country has a sort of a finals, a whole process they go through.
1: For those of you who don't know how Eurovision works, in a thirty-second tutorial, because obviously the American Song Contest, which I don't know what's going to happen with that, but they're trying Let's talk about that too. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think Americans are that. I mean, I don't. You know. Anyway, anyway, the way it works well, in Eurovision, we should, say,
0: we should say that most Americans think we, we were just talking about that. Most Americans, when they hear Eurovision, they instantly think of ABBA, but actually, it's way
1: more than that. Well, now they think of the <laughs> Will Ferrell movie. Now, well, that's a great movie. <laughs> now they I think love it's. And, and I you love know the funny thing about it, it is kind of like that because Will Ferrell did come to Eurovision. He did his research. He hung out. He even featured a lot of bonafide Eurovision artists in, in a cameo and wanted to see, I mean, you know, so, so that's closer to reality, but every country has its Miss America pageant, and then the winner goes on to Miss Universe, so every country has its finals, which are extremely competitive and a derby, so I came in number three in Lithuania four years ago, I came in five in Lithuania, and now I came in four in Norway. But my bigger one was, you don't know this, um, I was in Eurovision in 2020. Interesting, okay. 2020, I made it. I was going to be going to Rotterdam. I have a song called Cleopatra that got 9 million views for Azerbaijan. The artist was a Fendi. It's a fantastic thing. And everybody was telling me my song's going to be one of the top ones. Like I could not only make it to the finals, I could even be in the top three or five. I mean, it was a big... Hi. Yeah. Like 40. Uh,
0: Yeah. And because the thing is, you know, your vision, it has hundreds of millions of viewers. It's, it's,
1: it's, it is the biggest party in the world. Why do you think I want to be there? Why do you think? and, And not only that, it's the networking you talk about. I'm sitting here with you today because I met, because I know Nicholas from Travels. As an example, and so when you go, you spend a week in Eurovision with a thousand people from forty-five countries—artists, songwriters, producers, managers—and you're all together, and you're all together for a week. In addition to the two hundred million people that get to watch the show, you've just made net networking mana, networking heaven. Right.
0: And it's also there's I mean, people don't know this, but there's tons of folks from the states that are involved in Eurovision.
1: Um, there haven't been. There have not been. It's going to be changing. And that's why I wanted to get in there while I was still a rarity. Right. I'm, I have been a rarity in my travels in Eurovision. There have been no Americans. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was just saying, cause my friend Tracy actually works in Finland with the Eurovision
0: artists um, there, but yeah. And I, and I think, well, the American song competition, let's talk a little bit about that. because
1: That is organized by Eurovision people. His name is Christian Bjorkman, who is the biggest guy in Sweden. And he decided that he would take, he's a big player in Eurovision, Christian Bjorkman, he's Swedish. And he decided to do it in America and it's his, Vision a little bit along the lines you could say you know anybody with huge visions even like what's happening in the Ukraine but large visions his vision is to bring America to Eurovision and I don't think it's going to work myself because we're different we're we're you know and so therefore if you know anything about the American Song Contest it's going to be Montana versus Wyoming so at least this year. Oh, I, none of my European friends are going, oh, how do we get into the American Song Contest? <laughs> I said, right. at least now, you do not. It's all Americans. It's going to be Montana competing against Wyoming. And, and I don't know how that'll play out. I don't know if that'll burn yeah. out. Or and maybe it, becomes, maybe it becomes its own thing. You know, who, who knows, right? Right. But I don't yeah. think it's going to become part of Eurovision, which is, I, I mean, that's my impression. That it might be I don't think that we're going to join Eurovision anytime soon, but I could be wrong, we'll yeah,
0: and there's that's interesting. I mean in the Eurovision, I, I one of the people I actually had on the podcast was uh, Lordy, who won Eurovision, yeah, sure. they won Eurovision some years back as sure. a heavy metal band wearing makeup sure.
1: the whole you know the group that won now is is a rock band from Italy, and they're they right. been very successful this year, you know so
0: so let's let's yeah. talk about um your um your organization, Music Bridges. So we talked a little bit about that, but to explain what that is and, and how you. So, how you so set what it that is, up.
1: quickly, what it is is that in the eighties, I had the great part of the precursor to my involvement with Eurovision and saying that I've been to 142 countries, which I have, and I can brag about it because, by the way, the rule is you can't only have been in the airport; that doesn't qualify on my list. You have to be at least 24 hours in. The, That's a good rule. <laughs> outside the airport. At least take a cab ride around the center of the city. Something gets or get so, stuck overnight, which just happened to be <laughs> Ethiopia and Ghana. I was only there for like eighteen hours, but I got out of the airport anyway. But I've been to one hundred and forty-two. anyway, in the eighties, there was an organization of music festivals, usually in communist countries. Funny enough, because only communist governments could afford to spend half a million dollars to bring over a bunch of people to compete and not have to worry about making any money. If you want to organize a TV show to compete countries, you'd better find a way to make the sponsors happy and make some money. Exactly. In the 80s, the communist governments didn't have to ask anybody's permission. So they had these huge music festivals in Poland called Sopot, Voice of Asia and Kazakhstan. I went to all of them. Because there was an organization of music festivals. I also went to ones in Holland and Ireland and normal places. But I went to Hungary, Czechoslovakia. So in the 80s, I was everywhere in that part of the world. I I experienced bread lines. I did an album in Czechoslovakia in 1989. I made a whole (laughs) album and a tour of Slovakia. I was working with the keyboard player from the Czechoslovakian version of the Beatles called Ilan and we would literally stand in bread lines and eat only cabbage every night for about a month. I experienced the whole communist world, hands on. So out of that, and then at all these festivals, I met all these people that we as Americans weren't supposed to know. Mongolians, Uzbekistanis, Cuba. I had friends from all these countries. I met all these people. from. from they're just people. They're just people like us, right? <laughs> you, now, see, now I'm, you're, I'm leading you to be able to already say exactly what I'm doing. It, they're all just people. And then I would return from Kazakhstan, and my publisher would say, where the hell were you? What are you doing? You got a screening for Lethal Weapon 9 in the morning, and you're signed to me, and your quota is not happening this month, and you're behind on your quota, and you're over there in frickin' Kazakhstan. Get to work. So I would come back to this other life where I was an A-level Hollywood songwriter going to screenings and trying to get cuts. And it dawned on me the disconnect between music as a powerful language tool versus the commerce. Right, versus the business, right, sure. And I thought, what about, and, and I'm a songwriter. So I thought, what about a way of bridging those two together? So the idea was, let's bring a group of established songwriters and, and artists who are in the major A-level machine and take them somewhere crazy, somewhere. And then I raised the ante. I said, what if I could take them somewhere politically sensitive where we could use the power of music to hopefully make a statement about, we can all get along. Right. And that was the genesis of the idea. And then what happened is because I have my friends in crazy places, my friend from Finland, before Nicholas, one of my best brothers in life is named Antero Paivlenin. Antero Velenin. And I said to him, I was at a feed-off thing and I was telling him my idea that we should be doing something like that. And he said, well, okay. He said, well, what would you do? I said, well, you know, I'd like to do something crazy. Like this was 1987. We're in Gorbachev times. And I said to Ande, I said, you know what? Glasnost, perestroika. I said, Why, what if I could bring a bunch of artists and songwriters to Russia? to Moscow and do songwriting. He goes, let's do it. You ever have those moments in life where you have some crazy moment and someone goes, okay. Because of course, my friend Ande was friends with the Estonians, which was a Soviet Republic. And they speak the same language, Estonian Finland. So therefore, with his friends in Estonia, organizing it the way, he brought me to Moscow. And I met with Vladimir Matetsky, who was kind of like the one of the most famous songwriters in Russia at the time. And he knew all the Russian VOP, which was the Russian version. Anyway, to make a long story short, I had the ins to be able to actually do it. So we brought the first project in 1988, Music Speaks Louder Than Words. We went and we were partners with the Russians. And I should tell you in true fashion along the lines of the way things still go, four days before we left and i had all these people who had changed their schedules cindy all these people i get a call in the middle of the night from monday it was the oh boy call it's with a finnish accent it's oh boy i can't do it now oh boy they decided our russian partners that if we didn't agree at that moment four days before the trip that they get uh, i think the original deal was that we were paying for everything ourselves And we were giving them 20% of the project or something. And they said, if you don't agree in the next 20 minutes that that's 50-50 right now, it's all off. Uh, This is four days before we leave.
0: Yeah, uh, that's Russian uh, business.
1: (laughs) So what we did... And this is the great part. And People don't know this part of the story. I mean, I had—oh, believe me, dude—I had the FBI, I had the KGB. I've been through them all. When I did my Cuban project, Cuban project, I had like Cuban secret service in my outside my driveway. I, I have a whole—I have a whole file. Like, that's a whole other side of the story. So, so what happened was because of that, he was able to use the Estonians to double cross them, and we went. And we negotiated when we, I I had a really tough lawyer from a not Phelps, this little tough woman named Joni Graham Dunitz. And for five days, she was sitting at the long table with all the Russians and arguing (laughs) right out of all the movies, Joe. (laughs) Right out of all the movies. That's funny. And and we eventually got through it and, and, and they threatened to send us home like four times during the week. And it was historic. And everybody to this day, when I see Michael Bolton 30 years later, he always gives me a hug. Billy Steinberg just sent me his, his uh, collection he just made. And he, everyone still tells him it was the greatest of their life Desmond Child, Diane Warren. Because, because during that week, and, and the point of the whole story, Daryl, is that I, I really felt I proved the point that music really is the universal language. Right. I yeah. up the ante pretty high. And I think everybody who took part in it was really changed them. It changed them. Yeah.
0: Because those people, I mean, even though their they're celebrities are famous, they are they have money or whatever, but they're still artists and they still want they're to be They're
1: every, Well, you know that when you spend a whole life working around celebrities and people like that, everyone's just the same and people forget that. And when the switch goes on, share becomes share. Yep. Yeah, they know the game, but but
0: still they they want to interact. And that's part of how they write. That's part of they have to interact with people. So, to get- so I
1: feel very, very fortunate that I've been an observer by being a behind-the-scenes person. So I've organized my biggest music bridges to date, my triumph of the seven or eight of them I did. And well, the biggest success was the Cuban project because we all had, and, and I call it this joke. It's not that I agree with the politics. It's called Kings, Queens, and Dictators. I have known. Okay. Kings, Queens and dictators I have known. So we did get a private reception with Fidel Castro when we were there. We were there the same weekend as the Baltimore Orioles were doing an exhibition game against the Cuban national team. And then at the same time, and they flew down with senators and Orrin Hatch and on Angelo's private jet. And they had Oliver Stone who was there with his 12 year old. And I met Oliver Stone. They were there that way. And us rock and rollers, we were the ragtag caravan <laughs> group, yeah. you know, over there. But the rebels. What we're doing yeah. musically. The Cuban songwriters involved spoke to him, and he met with each person at twelve at night on the last night after the concert in his military uniform at the present. And he he met every person, got a chance to shake his hand and talk to him, and and so that was pretty much of a coup for just a. Songwriter yeah, album.
0: you know what? And those are, those are memories that stay with you your entire life, right? That's yeah. such a unique thing. Um,
1: and, and, and Cuba itself, watching the amazing, we made an album and the amazing songs that came out of all these incredible collaborations between those Cuban musicians and Dave Kaz and Brenda Russell and Gladys Knight and all Mick and Fleetwood and Jimmy Buffett. So I've been around a whole set of celebrities from my working as a songwriter with them. And then I've been around a whole other world of equally or more from my organizing these events and junkets that bring these right. people together. Yeah.
0: And that's amazing. And, I, you know, it's awesome that you took the initiative to even do something like that. That's a, that's a big, that's
1: a well, big you ask. You know and what? It's a big thing. I, I mean, I'm not <laughs> going to lie to you, Dara. You know, we all have our, our regrets. Um, I got off the A train. I, 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 I'd say this, I was on the A-Train, meaning if I had stayed focused on the A-Train I was already on in the mid eighties as a songwriter, I would have had a string of hits. I'm, I'm, I, I don't doubt, I mean, I've had a lot of success. I've had hundreds of cuts, I'm as good as, but my point is I stopped worrying about making money and I wanted to do this other thing in the name of what I believe is important. So I got off that train and pursued Music Bridges. And I paid a price for it. My career suffered because I I put my passion into that for some years. You know what? Life, life what? calls you in different directions and the universe has a plan. Well, so. I, I can say now <laughs> as I turn here, see here today, I don't regret anything. I did what was right at the time. You know, I wish I had found a way for a better balance among things. But um yeah. I'm a blessed, I'm a blessed man. I'm I'm whew, you know, I if I use today with, with Daryl in this podcast to, to announce to the universe, you know what? I'm a freaking blessed man. I'm saying it to you right now for myself. Okay. I'm doing that for me.
0: Because uh You know what, man, that's awesome. It's awesome that you feel that way. And and I think it's important to, you know, um to thank, you know, count your blessings, <laughs> you know. And it's not only about songwriting, it's about family, it's about you know, how, how are you going to, how are going to live the rest of your life and being happy and making moves?
1: I have, I have seen many, many things. And I've also been blessed to be able to say, I helped create a few that impacted a lot of other people, right? Whether anyone knows it or not, I know it. And it, it, it makes me very proud that I was able to do those things. And I was going to tell you the funny Ukraine story. Um, so I, I was in a big, mu- you know, these music festivals, I've always been in that circuit. I told you they had one in Crimea. I spent two weeks in Crimea with people from 40 countries. And, a, you know, competition, the winner was Ukraine. The winner was Ukraine. The winning, I forgot about it. And it was, well, obviously it was in Crimea. And we had Sri Lanka. Anyway, to make a long story short, I was there for two weeks in this amazing place in Yalta. And we were in Kiev for a week, the most beautiful city. And it was this amazing thing. And then to see what's happening now is particularly heartbreaking for me because I was there. I was in all the, I I was there. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the
0: thing is, people forget about the humanity of that, and I mean, artists and families, and, you know, we hear these, we hear stuff that goes on in the world. That's not always very nice, but it's, it's the people and uh, how it affects the people. And, and, you know, I have friends in Ukraine too, with small children and it's, it's, it's I, can't, it's just I upsetting. Can't, even,
1: can't imagine, but on the other hand, on a positive note, However, all of this plays out and the world goes on and the world always does go on. Maybe without us, but. <laughs> at, some point, at some point it will. <laughs> without us. Hopefully, hopefully far in the future. It'll go on. But, but music, will, <laughs> music will always continue to be important and be a part of it. Yeah, I
0: agree. And, 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 and that's why
1: it, I'm going to continue dedicating the rest of my life The same way I have up till now, taking advantage of however I can make a difference with my music or helping others with their music or whatever the way the road leads me, I am keeping right at it. And I just think it's so wonderful that I could be chatting with Nicholas in Norway last week and he having this wonderful conversation with such a cool guy like you, you know, I just... I wish to say Nicholas. So Nicholas um,
0: Rostrum, I think that's how you pronounce it. Nicholas
1: Rostrum, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so he's a producer, He's a producer, and he has um, his artist, Janneke, Janneke. Uh, is, is, is very successful in Finland, very successful in Europe. And that's how, and, and he's, they're good friends, and that's our mutual connection. Um Tell me about your, or give me your advice to young songwriters. What are some of the most important things that you've, I know it's a big question. Sure.
1: No, 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 no. I, 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 You get, and of course I've been asked it and I have some not prepared answer, but I have some thoughts about it because I have. So therefore I think what's most important and the first thing I'm going to say is not an answer, it's a philosophy, it's a whatever you want to call it. I believe. I still believe it was the same thing in 1978 when I started, and it's still the same on March the 2nd, 2022. I still believe that one of the most important things is you have to do it because you love it. You have to have the passion for it. You have to do it because you have to do it. You have to have those kinds of fierce passions and beliefs in it to be able to make it happen, period then you have to plug in all the realities and all the instant things that go around. And so things have changed. So now I think one other thing that has never changed and I think never will is it's all who, you know, I believe it's all, who you know, for instance, it's all who I know I'm here with Daryl Evans because I know Nicholas, because I made the effort to be in a position to be in Norway last week to talk to Nicholas and him to say, you know what? I have a friend that, would never have happened if I hadn't continuously made the effort to be out in the world, to meet, to go, to network. And I think that will never change. Yes, the technical world we live in, the ability to have virtual songwriting, virtual meetings, virtual anything. Of course, that's all new tools. It's all new options. I would never, and all of that works. But I still think as a songwriter, you need to look for ways to get out there for real. I don't think you just wanna hide in your studio, even if you can't. Even, even though you can sure, you can lead a whole music career from a studio in the back of a room in Biloxi, Mississippi, if you want to, and never leave home. And who knows, maybe you can become Max Martin, but I think your chances are better when you leave the studio occasionally and get out in the world. So I think it's very important for another important thing for songwriters business-wise is because it's all who you know, you need to go to every conference or participate online if you need to, any opportunity to network, 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 network. Then as far as the art of songwriting and the craft of the music part of things, you have to know the new songwriter has to remember that everything old is new again. If you want to try, you know, everything is a, is a pendulum that cycles back and forth. So in other words, I've seen at least, you know, you're sort of, you're not as old as me are I can't, I think you're about 30, right? No, I'm, about 50, I'm 56. Uh-huh. I, I knew you were closing in on me there, brother. Yeah, I'm I catching gonna up. It. <laughs> but I was going to say in our lifetimes, we've seen at least two or three pendulums. Whether it was disco to punk to grunge to boy bands to the beginning of rap to full on hip hop to Electrum to EDM. I mean, I was there when the first drum, I I was around when Roger Lynn was bringing drum machines around to studios and saying, Hey, I've got this cool new machine you guys need to check out. Yeah, like that'll never work. It'll never work work. Okay. So, so. So, the point is that everything will always evolve. And I think it's very, very important that you keep evolving with it. Adapter, you know, you want me to, to quote you on a slogan, Adapter die. Right. I didn't coin it, but I believe it. Yeah. So That's for real. That's yep. like my version of that is jump in the deep end of the pool. Whenever you wake up, and if there is a swimming pool and there's another swimming pool of life thrown at you, head to the deep end.
0: Yeah, it requires a lot of bravery, be an artist, you know,
1: well, or, stu- or, 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 or stupidity, but you know what, I would, putting myself down, I would say how stupid I am, but really what I really think it is, I use the word, it's the passion. It's the passion, it may be stupidity, it may be many things as well. But I think what it is is that when I am I'm 65 years old, I've written whatever I've written 2,000 songs. I've been I've reviewed a million more. I've been to full. Blah, 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 blah. But when I sit down to write, okay, my friend, my Soviet friend, it's funny you talk full circle. He was in this band called Inst, uh, Autograph. They were huge in Russia. He lives in Hungary right now. He's working with a young Russian duo out of Moscow today in the middle of all this shit. Right. He sent me three demos of this new Russian group, and he wants me to write lyrics just because he believes in them, and no one knows what's going to happen, and he doesn't want music to end. This happened, yesterday. this happened yesterday, and I said to him, I listened to them, and I got just as excited about trying to write lyrics for my friend for this as I would have for anything I've done in the last four years, just because I get excited about music.
0: Yeah. And it's awesome that after all these years, you still do. And I and I still do as well. I still wake up and I still love it. You know, and nobody got into music thinking they're going to get rich if they didn't well, they well, really actually,
1: smart. <laughs> actually, no, that's not true. Okay. A lot of people used to because there was. Yes. Back when, when I came up, I had several friends who got in it for the money and they made it. Because there was a lot and there's not now it's harder because it's just much more convoluted in how you make money. I could say, Unless you're the record labels, but I didn't say that. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. Unless they're taking all your taking all your publishing, right? (laughs) And my career just ended right there with that one
1: thing. I will. We won't tell anybody. It's it's our secret. But anyway, (laughs) but but you know, um, but but you do have to do it because it's 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 something that you can't be stopped from doing. Right. And that, that's, that's what I always say.
0: Like people ask me about should their kids do music and this and that. And I'm like, you know what, if you can't dissuade them, that's the only time they should probably do it. Well, <laughs> <you> know,
1: if, <laughs> Argue with someone who's decided that they, I mean, if some people say I refuse to let my child suffer like that, I'm a father, I'm a grandparent. I, don't know, I guess. I understand it. I'm just saying that that was my calling and that I was blessed that my father wasn't happy but he didn't stop me. Let me tell you one last little story because I guess we're probably out of, I mean, I could keep going for days, but I know what I'm no, sure, go ahead. Anyway, um, my father, and this is a personal story, it means a lot to me. My father, he died way too young, 57 from cancer, and that was in 1980, and that was right at the beginning of my career. I told you my first hit was a song called uh, Body Language by the Spinners. It was a disco hit in in 1979. And so right before my father died and I was at that point I was 23 and he knew he was dying and he was like any father he was worried about what, what's going to happen to me he won't be there for me he can't do much for me and I was able to show him the 45 mm-hmm. I had a 45 of body image in my hand and I was able awesome. to show him and, I, and and the point was that that represented don't worry I can do this. I'm gonna. I I'm doing this. I'm whatever it's gonna be. I'm doing this. I love it. I can do it. And it looks like, it looks like I'm good enough to do this. And I was able to uh, share that with him. That was. I'm I'm sorry. I'm still te- okay. still tear up on that one every time. <laughs> hey, you know
0: what? It's for real. And I mean, yeah. And that and that's that's powerful. So. That's awesome, Alan. I, you know what? Um, you've had such a great career. And uh, and I, I really I thank you. Stop. I have such a great career. <laughs> oh, no, no, I know. Yeah, it's still going. And that's awesome. <laughs> that's... Yeah, I know. No, it's, you know what? I'll be working until I die. So that, that's okay. Well, I, I get it. I can totally get it. <laughs> me, me too.
1: Me too. And yeah. you know what? And if, if, if I'm working till I die and at the end, it's I'm mainly helping others and it's not about me and I'm still helping. Right. others. That's okay too. Cause I, yep. I've done that all along the way. So there's, there's no change there. I
0: 100% agree with you and making a difference and helping young people too, and helping them find their footing. And that's, it's a, a powerful thing. Um, thank you so much for joining me. I, I know, you know, you're a busy guy and you got a lot pleasure of pleasure
1: was all mine. Awesome. How can people find you online? Well, let's see. You know, I have my own website, of course, the alanroyscott.com. If they want to check out Music Bridges, I have musicbridges.com. Or obviously, I'm Instagram or Facebook. My Instagram handle is Alan, Alan Roy Scott. Um, my, yeah. I don't even mind sharing my, my email address. I don't care at this point. I don't hide from it. I'm not famous enough to need to hide. It's just, um, you know, alanroyscott.gmail.com, you know.
0: Okay. And then we'll put um, we'll put all your links in the podcast description.
1: I, I have a question for you with, okay. with veteran people. I'm yeah. not anti-social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. But I'm not a real self-promoting social media guy. I'm more of a behind-the-scenes person. Do you think... Is that, am I completely a dinosaur or do you meet other older people who do not want to be social media fanatics all day long? You
0: know what? It, that's a very personal thing. And, and, you know, especially on the celebrity end of things, some people are very active. Some people are personally handling stuff. You know, I work with Kathy Ireland and Kathy runs her social stuff. She's on, she, you can talk with her. It's very personal. It just depends
1: on what you want to do. And like you said, you like being behind the scenes and, and that's perfectly Okay. As long as I can do okay in life and that doesn't penalize me by not making myself in everyone's face. <laughs> no, up, I don't, we'll you know, out.
0: you got, you got nothing to prove. You have quite a history and, and, uh, and, but it's, it, what I would say is it's nice to do stuff like this so people can learn about you learn about your yeah, background.
1: Yeah, I've done tons of, I love doing, it. I mean, because I think with the, I'm, I'm very comfortable in my skin and doing interviews and just being me. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm with that so i love this has been this has been uh, very enjoyable for me you're you're really obviously know how to you know interview people they can feel comfortable and that that's a, that's a skill it's a gift yeah well i think i think you know the biggest thing is just to allow
0: space for people to tell their story and i, and I want to you know and i'm curious that's the other part of it you just have to be curious which is important <laughs> doing this.
1: <laughs> you know. Well, anyway, well, thank you for having me. And I, you know, hopefully I've said something of some value to somebody or oh no, absolutely.
0: And, uh,
1: yeah. Thank you so much, Alan. And have have uh, I wish you the best of luck on your move. And let's stay in touch and maybe we'll maybe we'll reconnect in Sweden.
0: Uh, I'm, gonna deal- some,
1: I'm gonna send you some Swedish meatballs, by the way. My first Swedish word, That's Swedish meatballs. Mula, I <laughs> I've taken a lot of shit my wife
0: <laughs> There you go. All right man. Hey, have a great day, Alan. I'll Thank, Thank you, Daryl. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so awesome. much. Right, Thank bye, you so bye. much. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on our social media channels. For upcoming guest announcements, and keep up with the latest at MusicTribesUnite.news.